time where I haven't been to a Walla worship service, Wallace worship service in uh, some time. This is a little bit of a transition Sunday. I'm the interim pastor here, Mike Sherrod. It's my last Sunday after laboring just two weeks shy of three years with this precious flock. So I want to say, uh, first of all, thank you to all the dear servants who make the church what it is. Up here are sound and technical guys, the worship team, our wonderful staff, the deacons and the elders. It has been an unspeakable privilege serving Jesus with you. And on behalf of Janice and myself, thank you for the marvelous drive-by farewell last week. It was just wonderful. All your notes and cards of encouragement, we treasure them. The picture that you gave us of the church, whenever we see it in our home, we'll be reminded of what a wonderful flock you are, and we're deeply moved and humbled by the very, very generous thank offering, the um, love gift that you gave us. Not expected, but profoundly appreciated. Thank you for your kindness and for your generosity. We're finishing on my last Sunday, First Peter, took at least a year to get through. Here's our text. We're going to focus on verses... Um, 10 through 12, but I want to read from 6 to the end of the chapter. This is the word of God. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Here's where we'll focus this morning. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal Glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. I can't think of a more appropriate text with which to close out my shepherding ministry among you. What what would a pastor want to say in his final remarks? Stand firm. Stand firm in the true grace of God. It's what I would say to myself, my family, my dearest friends, and the flock over which the Lord has made me a shepherd. Stand firm. This is Peter's way of concluding his whole epistle. Look again at verse 12. 
I've written briefly to you, five long chapters, brief for ancient times, I suppose, exhorting and declaring that this, basically everything he said in the epistle, this is the true grace of God, stand firm in it. How? That's the question I love to answer when I look at an exhortation like that. How do you stand firm? I'll make this simple assertion and try to defend it. You can't stand firm if you're asleep. So the call to stand firm is synonymous with the call to spiritual alertness, wakefulness. Let me tell you why I make that. When, when Peter says stand firm, he's really going back to verse 8 in chapter 5 where he has said, be sober-minded, be watchful. In other words, stay alert, be awake. That's the third such warning in his epistle. Earlier in chapter 1, verse 13, he wrote, prepare your minds for action and being sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. His first call to clear, sober, alert thinking. And then in chapter 4, verse 7, he wrote, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the purpose of your prayers. What is Peter saying? Stay awake so you can stand firm and not be shoved down down by suffering, sin, sickness, sorrow, severe circumstances, sadness, the seduction of the world, and the stress of fear, doubt, and discouragement. Stand firm. So let's ask these four questions. How do you avert spiritual sleepiness? Number one, who drifts into spiritual sleepiness? The short answer is those who don't know themselves. Those who don't know themselves well are most in danger of drifting into spiritual sleepiness. So think physically. Do you know when you're getting tired? Of course. Your eyes droop and your body wants to stay put. What about spiritually? The first step in staying awake spiritually is to know that you have spiritual narcolepsy. Now, medically, narcolepsy is a condition where you're prone to go to sleep during the daytime, not at night when you're supposed to sleep. So you know this about your heart if you're going to be alert. There's a part of my heart that easily, that actually will naturally, the default mode of my heart will drift into spiritual lethargy, spiritual dullness, spiritual sleepiness. There's a drift in my heart, unless it's arrested, there's a movement in my heart naturally to being indifferent to God, to being cold to things spiritual. That's the natural drift of your heart. You've got to know that about yourself. So think of Peter's own experience in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus was praying at this incredibly excruciatingly painful hour of his life. Peter is sleeping. And he'd heard Jesus teach about the second coming. And when Jesus teaches about the second coming, he invariably warns about the necessity of being alert, staying awake. 
We heard one of the passages from the end of Matthew 24, read earlier in the service in Matthew 25. Jesus says the same thing with two parables. Each has the same point. I'm coming again. Be ready. Don't be found asleep when I appear in glory. So that's why Peter, is, who refers numerous times in his epistle to the second coming, that's why he's connecting this to being alert, standing firm resisting spiritual drowsiness. So what kind of people are quick to own their limitations? What kind of people are quick to say, yes, the drift of my heart is towards sleepiness. I'm frail, I'm weak, left to myself, I will go to sleep on the very most important things in all of life. What kind of people? The humble. He's already talked about the humble earlier in the chapter in verses five and six. It is the humble, it is the wise, it's the mature, it's the alert who will say, who will wake up every morning and say, Lord, I may be awake physically, but unless you arrest my heart, I will drift into spiritual sleepiness. You must come and stop that. That's our first point. Who drifts into spiritual drowsiness? Those who don't know that they are prone to do that and therefore don't know they need to stand alert and firm in grace. Second question. What causes spiritual sleepiness? Now, you might think too much spiritual exertion. Maybe. It's true. We can get fatigued and weary, and we do need Sabbath. Jesus himself took time away just to be with his Father in prayer. Jesus himself, no doubt, from spiritual and physical exertion, fell asleep in the back of a boat on the Sea of Galilee. He fell asleep in the middle of the afternoon. But did you know that physically speaking, the more energy you expend, the more energy you get? So if you're feeling kind of lazy and tired, if you exercise you will be energized. So Peter helps you by revealing two causes of spiritual drowsiness in his epistle. The first cause is excessive focus on yourself. Excessive focus on yourself. Self-promotion, self-protection, self-absorption, self-reliance, self-defensive. What do we call all of that? We call it pride. Peter's already warned about pride earlier in chapter 5. I need, I desire, I want, I must, me, me, me. The proud focus excessively on themselves, apparently forgetting what Peter warned earlier in chapter 5, that God opposes the proud. So here's the principle. You can't focus on two objects, at, at two different objects at the same time. You can't do that. If I'm focused on one thing here, the other of necessity is not in focus. If I focus on this, this object of necessity, this object is, is not in focus. If you are focused on yourself, the needs of others will be blurry. And so we know from the epistle that pride kills what every pastor wants to see in their church, what Peter wrote in chapter 3, verse 8, when he said, all of you 
have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Pride gobbles all that up. The humble heart wants to be filled with the spirit of Jesus, is relying on the spirit of Jesus to produce these graces for a healthy church. So here's the irony. The more you serve others, the less tired you'll be spiritually. As a rule, the more servant-focused you are, the less tired you'll be spiritually, the more spiritual energy you'll get. Other-centered servanthood becomes its own energy creator. Earlier in chapter 5, when Peter wrote, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility, that verb clothe had to do in the ancient world with a servant tying his servant's apron around his waist. So that tells you that one mark of spiritual alertness, one way to avoid going to sleep spiritually, is to clothe yourself, put on humility as a mindset. Let's put it this way. Nothing keeps you more alert than this attitude. I'm here to serve you. Conversely, nothing puts you to sleep spiritually more quickly than what attitude? What's in this for me? Why aren't they serving me? That is a put-you-to-sleep spiritually way of thinking. Now, is an age a factor in this when it comes to serving in the church? Of course it is. Some of us get to the age where we can't move the tables, we can't move the chairs, we're not going to get on our knees in the nursery. Very understandable. There are other ways, as you have physical limitations, that you can serve. And so how appropriate that the younger generations come in with stronger arms and stronger knees and they can serve. So let me encourage our school-age people, high schoolers, those, those of you in middle school, those of you in elementary school, why not ask your church leaders and your Sunday school teachers, how can I serve in the church? And maybe, boys and girls, you'd actually start at home and ask mom and dad sometime today, how can I serve at home because that will be a way of staying awake spiritually. And when I'm serving in an other-centered, joyful way, I am of necessity averting going to sleep spiritually, which is a dreadfully serious thing. Serving, growing in grace, knowing Jesus is a community project. We do it together. The writer of Hebrews wrote in Hebrews 10, 25, don't forsake your gathering together, but stimulate one another to love and good deeds. So we're asking this question. What causes spiritual drowsiness? Excessive focus on yourself and, ironically, inadequate focus on, focus on yourself. Here's what I mean. If you go back to chapter 2, verse 11, Peter warned that there is a war going on inside of you between indwelling sin and the real you. The you that has been made new in Jesus Christ. The you where God is dwelling by a spirit. The new man or woman in Christ. There's a war. Sin is at war with you. So he wrote in chapter 2 verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the lust of the flesh, excuse me, which wage war against the soul. If you, you will fall asleep if you stop battling indwelling sin. So wake up tomorrow morning and say what? 
Lord, sin is at war in me. Me, the one that's been transformed, the one that has a new heart, the one that is indwelt by the spirit of glory and grace and power and resurrection, sins at war with me. Come to my help. Give me eyes to see these sins. Give me grace and power to assault these sins. The old theologians used to call it mortify these sins, kill them, sap the life from them. So if you look ahead in your day and you know this is going to be a day where I will probably be tempted with the sin that so easily entangles me, be it impatience, anger, bitterness, lust, being critical, fearful, lazy, discontent, greedy, controlling. You need to know this about your heart so that by the Holy Spirit you can ask him to attack those, replace those with graces that the Bible tells you God will, sub God will replace those that you can move in the power, enjoy the Holy Spirit, and be a blessing to people because all of these things steal what you owe other people, and that is love and service. Is battling sin tiring? Absolutely. But you can't stop doing it. And it won't put you to sleep. Just like exercise is tiring, but it doesn't put you to sleep. So the joy of obedience is, in fact, energizing. The joy of obedience is its own reward. Do you know that in your experience? Now, there's one book of the Bible that makes this clear over and over and over again. There happen to be 31 chapters in this book, which means you can read every one of those chapters as it corresponds to the day of the month. Yes, the book of Proverbs, one last plug, last sermon, who would have guessed? The book of Proverbs again and again tells you how righteousness, the fear of the Lord, obedience is its own reward. Just pick one, Proverbs 22, 4. The reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches, honor, and life. That isn't the reason to obey God, but it may be the result. So, beloved, you will find ruthless conflict with sin, ruthless battling sin every day. This is what we're called to, because sin's battling you every day. Are you in the fight? Or are you asleep? Ruthless conflict with sin actually will create in you an appetite for the very graces you need to battle sin. So think what a heart is like that is spiritually sleeping, spiritually drowsy, isn't concerned with battling sin. What is, a, what is that heart like? Well, there's a loss of appetite for the word of God, a loss of appetite for prayer, a loss of interest in praising God, a, a superficial conf confession of sin, a general lack, a lack of gratitude. You're unmoved by the majesty of God, and you're careless with your words. I've drawn all of those from the epistle itself. Don't have time to annex them all. My point is, when you are seriously pursuing the heart of Jesus for help by a spirit to battle indwelling sin every day, you will receive grace in every one of those areas. You'll begin to long for the pure milk of the word of God by which you grow in salvation. He says that at the end of chapter 1. You'll be alert for prayer. He talks about that in chapter 4. You will declare his excellencies. That was in chapter 2. There'll be heartfelt repentance ongoingly. You'll be thankful. You'll stand in awe of the Lord versus be unmoved by his majesty. And you'll be very careful with the use of your words. Chapter 3, verse 10. The point? 
when you are seriously battling sin, you will crave the graces necessary for the conflict. That's good news. That's hopeful. That's encouraging. Third question. How do you stay alert? Well, let's think physically. What wakes you, uh, what wakes you up physically? Light. It's dark at night, we go to sleep, it's dark. We wake up in the morning, the sun rises, the light. It awakens you. So stay in the light. Paul put it this way in Ephesians 5.14. Awake, sleeper. Arise from the dead. And Christ will shine on you. See, there is a kind of light that shines very distinctly from Jesus' cross that it is impossible to sleep in. Sometimes at home, when, in the evening... I'll tell my wife, I just need to lay down and take a nap. And, you know, she doesn't necessarily have to turn off the light. I might be tired enough that I can just sleep even though the light's on. Usually she turns it off as a courtesy. There's a kind of light that shines from the cross of Jesus Christ in which it is impossible to sleep, impossible to be indifferent to. And that is this. Jesus says, on the cross, I took the darkness of your sin to clothe you in the light of the beauty of my righteousness. I was plunged into the darkness of judgment on the cross, alienated from my Father to deliver you for eternal glory of light and brilliance, the presence of God. Jesus says to you, I was dying in the physical darkness. The sun was shrouded, being forsaken by my Father to earn the right that to give you that you will never be forsaken by God. Light from the cross, it awakens. And how much more light from the resurrection enlivens. That's a whole other sermon. Fourth question, last question. How do you avoid spiritual sleepiness? What's the most obvious danger when you're physically asleep? You're not conscious. You're not aware of what's going around. You can't hear. You can't see. All kinds of sketchy things could be happening to you. You're not aware of that. And Jesus actually draws on that simple fact of life when he exhorts us to spiritual wakefulness. Matthew 24, 42 to 44. Jesus said, therefore, stay awake. You don't know on what day the Lord is coming. The climax of history, the thing to which everything on the earth is moving, judgment day, the appearing of the revelation of the glory of God in Jesus Christ. That day, Jesus says, but know this, if the master of the house had known what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Of course, therefore you also must be ready Translated, spiritually awake day in and day out. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So, earlier in the chapter, remember how we think we saw this last week, Peter warns about the prowling lion who prowls around seeking someone to devour. And the next thing he says in verse 9 is, he counsels you, resist him Firm in your faith. Firm in your faith. Sidebar, don't forget in Ephesians 6 when Paul uh, uh, gives you the armor of God for spiritual conflict, he says take up the shield of faith, what it's able to do, which is able to extinguish the 
flaming missiles of the evil one. Satan is constantly drawing his bow, lighting an arrow, and sending it to try to burn up your confidence in God, burn up your sense of the presence of God, burn up your desire to serve God, burn up anything in you that would worship God. Satan is constantly trying to shoot that and burn it. The shield of faith is adequate for that. But and when P Peter says in verse 9, resist him, firm in your faith, he then moves to the specifics of the operation of faith. Very helpful. Faith, what we trust God will do. So here are the last three things that Peter says. That the God of all grace, let's just stop there for a second. All grace, super abounding in quantity. You can never call on God and you won't. You'll always get enough grace. There's always enough grace. You need a thimble of salt water, go to the ocean. That's how much grace there is for the symbols of your need. The God of all grace, and that grace is perfectly suited to your needs in quality. Quantity, quality. Off the charts. So Peter says, the God of all grace will what? Verse 10, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Translated, all loss will be made right for all eternity. Now, what does Peter personally know about restoration after loss? You probably know the story. Peter denied his Lord three times when Jesus was being interrogated. Personal loss, needing restoration. Peter watched Jesus crucified on Good Friday, all his hopes and dreams for three years. Professional loss, it all went up in smoke, so to speak. It's all over. Peter knew a lot about restoration after loss because Jesus himself restored Peter. That's actually how we began the whole series. Faith trusts that the God of all grace is with you restoring whatever may have been lost through suffering, confirming any position or privilege you've lost through suffering, strengthening for any weakness inflicted by suffering, and establish putting you back in the rightful place lost by suffering. Maybe in this life, maybe not. Certainly in the next. So think about this eternal glory Peter references here. What you may have lost in terms of happiness in this life will redound in unspeakable joy endlessly in the next. What you may have lost in reputation in this life will be made up for when you rule the universe with Jesus. That's what's ahead for us. You'll rule with Christ. Sounds like enough reputation to satisfy anybody. What you may have lost in body through suffering in this life you will receive back in a resurrected body that will never die, never cry, never sin forever, eternal glory in Christ. And what you may have lost in property in this life, you will only inherit the entire earth in the next. That's what Peter is saying. The God of all grace will, when? Verse 10, after you suffered for a little while. Vague. Might be in this life. Might not be. Might be... Might might not be till the next. But he's invoking on what we read in the Psalms. Incidentally, you can study the Psalms in the adult Sunday school class. 
Next Sunday, it's going to be taught by Dory Kenyon. Tune in. All the instructions will be given in the e-news. You can study Proverbs with Jan Adams, or you can study Doctrine of the Church with Jamie. Lots of wonderful opportunities for Christian education. Your elders and deacons want you to take advantage of all of them. Uh, this is what the psalmist calls waiting on the Lord after you suffered for a little while. How many times do you see in the Psalms, how long, O oh Lord? That's actually what the saints who've run the race before us are saying right now before the altar in heaven. How long, how long? Faith trusts the timing of God. That's how long. And finally, the God of all grace why he has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. God called you to himself. God began this work because he wanted you. He paid for you through the precious death of his son. He calls you to be born again, Peter told us in chapter 1, verse 3. You'd never be a Christian unless God had given you the faith. He'll finish his work. He'll see you through. You're precious to him. You're ultimately the father's gift to his son. And the father keeps his promise to his son. And the father doesn't give his son junk. He gives them trophies of grace. And like any good parent, our father will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And so what is the key to firm faith? Faith. It is the certainty that because the God of all grace has, then the God of all grace will. Because the God of all grace has, therefore the God of all grace will. The God of all grace won the grace for you to stand firm through the victory of his son. Through the suffering of condemnation, the suffering of bearing your sins, Jesus has delivered you to stand blameless on the day of judgment. Stand in the day of judgment. And isn't it interesting? that on the, his trek to the cross on Good Friday, he stumbled to the ground under the weight of the cross. And it wasn't standing on the earth that Jesus paid for your salvation. It was being lifted up from the earth. And it wasn't standing on the earth that the Father secured everlasting glory for you by raising the Son. No, Jesus was lifted up off the earth and ascended to heaven where he reigns and prays and waits for you forever. Jesus opened a never-ceasing fountain of grace for you, not really by standing per se, but by being lifted up and ascending to the very heavens on your behalf. Faith seizes that, and it puts its feet down in Christ. That's why Peter can help but conclude, to him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. That's probably a good place to end. But let's end with a quote from Charles Spurgeon. Who better to compare what we suffer in this life to the eternal glory that awaits us? So bear with me for this reading, some reflection of the uh, British 19th century pastor Charles Spurgeon. He wrote this. When you and I have been in heaven 10,000 years, we will look back on our time here as nothing. Our pain will seem like a pin's prick, our gain a speck, and our duration the twinkling of an eye. 
Even if you tarry 80 or 90 years in this exile, when you have been in heaven a million years, the longest life will seem no greater than a thought. You will wonder why. You said that the days were weary and the, night, and the long nights dreary. You will wonder why the years of sickness dragged at such weary lanes. Eternal bliss will overflow our present sea of sorrow. We make too much of this poor life and the fondness costs us dearly. Oh, for a higher estimate of the home country with its eternal delights. Then the trials of a day would vanish like the morning dew. We are only here long enough to feel an April shower of pain. Then we are gone among the unfading flowers of the endless May. Therefore, put things in order. A lot to this brief life, its brief consideration, and to everlasting glory, its weight of happy meditations. Translated, stand firm in Christ. Let's pray. So may we, Lord Jesus, stand firm in your grace as you, by your Holy Spirit, show us the hope, the glory, the salvation, the future, the acceptance that's ours through your death and resurrection. May Wallace Church family know this grace of Jesus and you make them stand firm in it for your glory's sake and their good. Amen.